The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi. And with us again today is Kristen Sapola. She's a publicist over at Berkeley. And today we will be talking about Taylor Swift and books, two of our favorite things. So, Kristen, thank you so much for coming back and discussing with us today. Thank you for having me. Talking about books and Taylor Swift is by far my favorite thing to do. Mine too. I I find myself trying to bring up both of these topics just in daily conversation. And I'm sure the people around me at this point are, they've either accepted it and love it or they're super annoyed and know how to mask it. Same. I now preface things with people like saying, you already know what's about to come out of my mouth. So please don't be surprised. Yes, I love it. All right. So today we have kind of put together a summer set list of Taylor Swift songs. And I'm going to run through the songs that I have chosen. And Kristen is going to pair that song with a new Berkeley book release. All right. So first one up, we have Cruel Summer off of the Lover album. Cruel Summer, I am pairing with You With A View by Jessica Joyce. This comes out in July. Uh, This is a trope-tastic rom-com. It has everything we love about it. It's enemies to lovers. There's a road trip romance. It's the only one bed trope. It has all the grandparent feels, and it is one tense summer with a love that both characters want to resist but cannot. Uh, so this story revolves around Noelle, and after her grandmother dies, she goes on this search for a long-lost mystery man she saw in a photo with her grandmother. And the last thing she expects is for this mystery man to be the grandparent of her high school nemesis, Theo. And from there, you can get all of the enemies to lovers feels that we love. Super excited. All right, next up, we have Lavender Haze off of the Midnight's album. Lavender Haze. I paired this with First Positions by Melanie Hamrick. This comes out in June. First Positions is a sexy, dark, ballerina-esque romance that is so spicy right from the get-go. Our main character is in a constant fight to leave her past behind, but finds that she's falling into the same patterns, but with a new man. But this man seems very different than her past in that he doesn't want to ruin her career and her reputation as such a prestigious ballerina. We get a look behind the curtain of what the ballerina world looks like. It's Black Swan with the angst of a typical Colleen Hoover novel. It is so good. And within the second chapter, a very sexy scene happens. And I just feel like I need to preface that because that alone is what made me pick up the book instantly. Well, I'm excited for chapter two. All right. Third up, Wonderland off of 1989. Wonderland was actually pretty tough for me because it's so whimsical and I was trying to pair it with a perfect book and I think I did that. Uh, So Witch of Wild Things by Raquel Vasquez Gilead and that comes out in September. So I'm giving you a little bit of an early taste. 
This is a whimsical romantic fantasy rooted in Mexican folklore. It is witchy, but it is a different type of witch than we've seen. I absolutely loved it. There's sisterhood in it. There's second chance romance. The first time the romance happened was over AIM, which fills my 90s nostalgia so much. It is enchanting. It's a adult debut for this author. It's heartfelt. There's healing. It's amazing. I loved it. I think readers will love it. It is everything we love about the witchy romance. It's cozy. It's fantastical, but it is a little bit different than what we've seen on the market. I'm super excited for that because witchy romances are my favorite thing. Fourth up on the list, Sparks Fly off of the album Speak Now. For Sparks Fly, I'm pairing it with Ashley Poston's second novel, The Seven Year Slip. This book comes out in June, and this is of a woman who falls in love with a man who exists in the past, seven years in the past. And she quite literally lives seven years in the future. So how those loves will overlap is up to readers to figure out. Ashley Poston is such an amazing writer. Her love stories capture the angst of meeting someone and your whole world flips when you fall in love. And to me, that's what Sparks Fly is. Last but certainly not least, one of my favorite songs, Gorgeous, off of the album Reputation. Gorgeous is one of my favorite songs, so I had to pair it with Love Theoretically by Allie Hazelwood, which comes out in June. Love Theoretically is yet another enemies to lovers romance, which pits a theoretical physicist against an experimental physicist. And if you have no idea what those two types of physicists do, you are about to learn. Our main character is offered the opportunity to have her dream tenured track position at MIT, But little does she know, one of the people on the hiring board is someone that doesn't like her. So from there, you can see what's about to happen. It is an all-out war of scholarly sabotage. Allie really ups the science ante in this one. It's sweet. It's spicy. It gave me butterflies. And I know readers are just going to adore it. Well, I, for one, am super pumped and excited for all of these books to come out. Thank you, Kristen, for going through our Swifty Summer Playlist collab with Berkeley releases and for recommending all of these for us. I hope you love them all and you listen to Taylor Swift as you are reading them. If you're a fan of funny, smart, snarky women writers like Samantha Irby, Lindy West, Sloane Crossley, or Jenny Larson, listen up. From award-winning TV writer Laura Belgrave, Tough Titties is a hilarious collection of full-body cringe, watch-through-your-fingers life lessons her own husband calls loser sex in the city. Laura's wildly relatable coming-of-age stories include hate-following her sixth-grade bully on social media decades later, moving home post-college to measure her self-worth in hookups with Upper East Side bartenders, dating a sociopathic man-baby, proving herself in the early 90s at New York's coolest magazine as the world's worst intern, falling for get-rich-quick schemes on the internet, and most of all, saying tough titties to the supposed tos in life. Driving a car, being on time, handing in your paperwork, learning to roast a chicken, and having kids. Peppered with cutting insights on our confusing, self-helpy culture that calls hair removal self-care and tells us to give our 110%, but also to give zero fucks, Tough Titties will leave you feeling better about, well, everything. 
let's face it, we're all tired of shame spiraling after being told what to do when we know we're not going to do any of it. Tough Titties comes out June 13th from Hachette Books. Order from your favorite local bookstore or shop online at bookshop.org. Hi, my name is Ashley and I'm a Feminist Book Club content contributor. And I am joined today with Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. And they returned to the podcast to talk about the night in question. Kathleen and Liz, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us again. I'm having us, actually. My question is related to Agatha Christie quote from her book, Death on the Nile. And it reads, how true is the saying that man was forced to invent work in order to escape the strain of having to think? And I just wanted to know your thoughts and why choose that quote for the book? You know, well, so I chose the quotes for every chapter and I try to match them up with what's going on in the chapter, generally speaking. And in this chapter, I'm trying to remind myself, so apologies. Yes, Alice's dad takes back off after only being home for a few short days. She hasn't seen him in months because he is an international businessman. He's always off traveling and ignoring her essentially. And she arrives home to find him on his way out yet again. And I chose that quote in part because I feel like her dad is a good example of someone who buries himself in his work to avoid his family, to avoid feeling feelings and the responsibilities of his emotions, essentially. And so instead of like dealing with Alice in, and talking to her about what she's been doing, her friend's death in the first book, he instead just leaves and Alice is abandoned yet again. Also, the quote is interesting because, you know, I, I think this is something that a lot of people talk about these days in terms of like capitalism and how destructive it can be. Um, because I think a lot of times, and we see that this lot, I think right now in places like France, people are like out in the streets protesting, but in the United States, everyone needs their paychecks, right? Mm -hmm. We need to like work to live instead of live to work. And so people are unable to like go out and stand up for the causes that they might want to stand up for because they need to put food on their tables. And I also think it's interesting how it's positioned as a man being able to invent work. Mm -hmm. Yes. As opposed to just like a person inventing work and then men just adapting it to a way to avoid their emotions. Mm -hmm. That is also true. Yeah. Doesn't Alice, but Alice does that too. Oh, yeah. It's like she's learned very well from her father. Like she's inventing all this work for herself. Mm -hmm. Rather, that was something that I noticed regarding her schoolwork. And that leads us to what is the night in question about? So the night in question picks up four months later after the Agathas, after Alice and Iris have solved the murder of Brooke Donovan and some other things. And it's about more mysteries in Castle Cove. And it picks up on the night of the Sadie Hawkins dance for the high school. There's a violent assault featuring one of the mains, Rebecca Kennedy and Helen Park. And at first they're searching for that. But then along the way, they discover other clues about Hollywood starlet Mona Moody's death from the Levy Castle balcony in the 1940s. And so they are thrown together 
yet again in uncovering like long buried secrets in Castle Cove. And also what we tried to do in this book too is, is evolve their relationship in different ways. Like now there's a lot of tension. Iris is having some PTSD from the incident with her dad in the first book. Alice is having a lot of tension with her parents. They're having like some friend group tension. And we tried to also make sure that their friendship like showed some real strain. Alice is concerned about like her future and what she's going to do. Iris is concerned about her future and also kind of a slow burn romance with maybe one person or maybe another. And they go on another quest. And this time it's even more dangerous and they have to take a road trip and they discover even more things and more evil bad people. Indeed. Indeed. And they go to Los Angeles. And they go to Los Angeles. Which was pretty fun to write. There are more characters that are introduced in the story, but the focus between Alice and Iris's friendship, there are moments where they are a bit antagonistic towards each other, but they still have their friendship. Often teenage girls' friendships are sort of like belittled in entertainment and media, as are teen girls, generally speaking. And we wanted the the friendship here to be like, almost the heartbeat of the book. It's almost like they have been friends for so long. They're like an old married couple. That's Mm -hmm. what they seem like Mm -hmm. to me when we're writing them sometimes. But they also like bring out things in each other that one character or another might be trying to avoid. Like Alice, you know, they're, they're kind of always trying to get the other to step up and like be better than they are individually, which I think it's a really lovely thing about their friendship. They are 17. I mean, high school is going to end at some point and they have to think about their futures. And so we did try to make a point in this book of showing that the path to their futures is going to be very different because of their class differences Mm -hmm. and that Alice is going to have more privilege in terms of what she wants to do for her future than Iris is. There are always bumps in the road when you have friendships with people especially like close friendships and so if you're not evolving together and being open about like that evolution then you're definitely going to have some some tension in the relationship which i think is realistic for relationships between like teen girls very much so like this person's going to have like all the advantages over me and i love them but it's still going to be easier for them and and things like that and and iris in this book she's still really struggling like emotionally and psychologically um, from what happened in the first book. And she's still afraid to really open up about that to Alice. I mean, everything isn't like instantly healed <laughs> in the first book when they become friends at the end and, and they do like tell each other their secrets. You know, it's it's a learning process. And I like, because also what we typically see in movies is like the the jock or the cheerleader or the popular girl is failing a class and she needs a tutor all of a sudden to get her grades together. But what this story does is really see them as two people who need each other. Mm-hmm. And Alice may be a little bit more than Iris, but Iris recognizes that Alice isn't just some like popular girl. She's actually someone who needs support. So why yeah. not be that support for her? So it takes away that trope that we see so often in movies and TV and even books and really flips it on its side to create a genuine friendship that has broadness to it. 
we did try in this book too to sort of bring some of the background characters and the Agathas to the forefront. You learn a lot more about Neil, one of the zoners. You learn more about Zora, one of the zoners. You learn a lot more about like Spike and where he's coming from and how he, you know, moved to Castle Cove and became friends with Neil when he was younger after his mother died. So we, we investigate a lot. I think that we did a really good job of deepening those background characters and, and exploring them a little bit more and making them like less trophy, I think, yeah. on the page. So I'm pretty proud of that. Yes. And as we were talking about earlier in the conversation, was Alice using her work and her investigation to sort of avoid the responsibilities of her work. And what did you all want to show about the expectations of being a quote-unquote good student? Well, paying attention to school is important. I would never endorse otherwise. But I do think it is Alice is someone who might benefit from like more of a non-traditional path in terms of her education. And we try, I think, with our educational system as it currently is to fit everyone into the same mold. So with Alice, part of it is showing that not every kid fits into that mold of like being good at math, being good at science, following this straight and narrow path. And Alice is very privileged and very lucky that she might, she even can think about having the opportunity to not follow that path. And I hope that that comes through in some of the conversations she has with Iris's mom in the book, her sort of starting to realize that that is truly a privilege that most people are not afforded. Alice finds her, her real love, like outside of school. And it's still something that is like, she's using her brain. She is you know, using resources like the archives in this book and history, but it's just not in the classroom setting. As the story is making a turn, she's learning to believe in herself and to use her brains. And I do like that you talked about the sort of non-traditional learning aspect. It's not that Alice doesn't care or she's not smart. It's just she has to be motivated differently to get her work done. And even with a class assignment that was a big part of her grade that she getting that assignment done was motivated more by her solving or being a part of solving this case. So I think it's, it speaks to students and readers who don't quite understand students who are so by the books, unintended. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And a character I really liked was Tessa Hopkins. She's a television reporter and something that she says to Ben, who's a fellow news reporter, is it's obvious you've never been a teen girl, Ben. And I really like that line because she says it kind of under her breath, but it also shows she's really interested in this story more than anything about like the weather or a, a festival or something happening. It really speaks to her as a reporter and as a person. Why did you have her say that? When I was writing my first book, Girl in Pieces, I had an agent before the one that I have now. And that agent had a variety of assistants that she would pass drafts of the book off to. And they kept like changing. And so I would get different comments from each one. And one, this is nothing against this person, was very young and just out of college and was a young man. Mm -hmm. And he was reading this book, which is a really difficult book about adolescence and self-harm and depression and one of his comments was the main character had been bullied in high school kind of relentlessly and one of his comments was 
I just don't think that teen girls would be this mean to each other. Mm-hmm. And I laughed and laughed and laughed. You're like, have you ever read Courtney Summers? <laughs> and this, like, this was not the right person to be reading that type of book. And that has, that line has stuck in my head. And I really wanted to put that in the book because I don't know why people look at teen girls and they're like, oh, you would never be capable of such cruelty. Oh my goodness. Yes. Even when we're like young, we have some dark, it's like we take, we like cut Barbie heads off. Like we do things. Do you know what I mean? Like we are kind of creepy as hell when we're younger. And I I don't know why everyone's always like, oh no, you know, there's no way that that girl could have done that. That's a horrible thing or something that. And part of me feels like it's a defense mechanism that we have to learn at a very young age, like fight or flight. You know what I mean? Like I got to come out on top because I have all these other forces against me in the world. And if I've got to take some of my people down, I certainly will. And and I also want to give Tessa a little bit of humanity because she is. But, you know, I love Tessa because she's a striver. She knows what she wants. She's going to find a story. And even, and she really does. I think that she does care about Alice and Iris. It's always just about the story. I think she's very interested in, in how strong and capable they are and that they don't give up. So I think in the back of her mind, she's really supportive. of But I, I do love that line because I think that it, it underscores also what we talk about a lot in the book is like misogyny towards these girls and, you know, towards women in general. It reminds me of that tweet that was like talking about how there are two shows on TV about like one show about girls playing soccer and one show about boys playing soccer. And it's like when girls playing soccer get together, they eat each other. And mm. when boys get together playing soccer, they cry. <laughs> yeah. I really like the the pace of the story. It's not so in your face. As it begins, it's a bit of a slow churn and then it has its moments where the temple is up. And then as we're getting to the whodunit of it all, I kind of read it like as the person was revealing, like every time there's like an organ going off, like a dot, and they would say something, it was like a dot. And it really added to this, this, the mystery and the fun of it all of like finding out, oh, this is what actually happened. Anxiety. And fear. We had to write really quickly. We have to hit like certain beats and we're conscious of the pacing for this book, like very much so. Because it is, I think it's a much more complicated mystery than the Agatha's put a lot in there. Yeah. And I think we did a similar thing to what we did in the first book where toward the end, as like the action was picking up, we like shortened the chapters and did more like back and forth between out, you know, like sort of in a movie where you like like go to one scene and then another scene and then another and it picks up the pace of the story that way. Some of it has to do too with the, the way that we have to write the books together since we don't mm-hmm. live in the same town and because we have like family and obligations like our our thing from the Agathas from the get-go with that was we have to write 10 pages like each chapter and when we have to like trade chapters every day. So writing very quickly like in that sense I think for these types of books like increases the the pacing and the tension well one spoiler i will give is that you both pull it off so congratulations (laughs) we were really excited to write about to like keep up that thread Mm -hmm. on emoji i think this time and and investigate that Mm -hmm. and keeping making this story fresh even though there's already was a bit of a blueprint with the agathas 
So you get to do something new, but also continue with what was great about the first book. Yeah, exactly. When Alice talks about not judging someone's clothes, like she's like, oh, I can't, I don't judge people's clothes anymore. She was in this clique with these girls and they carried themselves as, as a certain way. What was important for Alice to unlearn about being in a clique? She needed to learn who she was as an individual. Brooke was Alice's best friend for a long time. She was sort of like the most popular girl in school next to Alice. And they had a, like three other very good friends. And after the events of the first book, Alice is no longer close with them. So she's, she, and Iris is such a free thinker that I think for Alice, it's like a whole new experience getting close to somebody who isn't tied down by like, social status or clothing labels, things like that. So she's trying to evolve past that. I think she still has a lot of that, those things in her head, in part because of her old friends and in part because of her parents and how she was raised. But I th- I do think she is trying her best to kind of move past that. It's good too that like Alice is embraced by the zoners. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Zora, even though she likes to rip her, and they have like, you know, some intense back and forth. Like they just accept her from the get-go that she's like in that group now that Iris has brought her in. And I, I feel like for me as the writer of like Iris, that that is probably really touching to Alice, even though she would never like openly admit it, that they just took her in. There was yeah. no, you have to pass this loyalty test or wear these clothes or whatever like <laughs> she had with the mains. She doesn't <laughs> have an appearance that she has to keep up with the zoner. Exactly. She can be... She can actually figure out who she is rather than yeah. like having to keep up appearances. Yeah. yeah. As you have mentioned, there is a drive from Castle Cove to Los Angeles. What would be on that playlist? That's a good question. I feel like Alice would listen to Lana Del Rey. Mm. Maybe some Taylor Swift because she is, you know, still Alice. And... It would probably be all Taylor Swift. Who am I kidding? It would be just the whole new album of Taylor Swift. And Iris would be like, can we please turn this off? Iris will be putting Devil Town by Cave Town on there. Oh, because that was the song I was thinking of. There would be some Mitski on there for sure for Iris. And then I think she would throw in a ringer and she'd probably have like Fireball by Pitbull on there. Because who doesn't want to listen to that when you're on a road trip? That is true. Alice would appreciate that. That's a good, high temple. Yes. Yeah. And what book are you all reading that you feel that you either enjoy or feel needs more amplification? So I'm going to put a plug in here for someone who actually has written 28 books and that I think should be way, way more well-known. April Henry in her new book, Girl Forgotten. And she has written 28 books. Amazing. Teens, mysteries and thrillers. I've read like four now. Because I couldn't, I couldn't put them down. She is playing the long game and she's very meticulous in her procedural work mm-hmm. in the book. She often takes a true case and uses details from it to create the story in her books. And I have talked to her for interview purposes and she's very like detailed in her research. Like she took a class in how to survive in a room with nothing if you're kidnapped. How to make a weapon out of like a plastic bottle of soda, if that's what they give you to drink. 
she's taking classes on how to get out of like handcuffs and ropes. And she like really goes the extra mile and it shows in the books. And that's a good one. I recently read a book to blurb it, which I really liked called How to Find a Missing Girl by Victoria Wolosok. And Victoria is, I think, 19 or 20 years old. Mm -hmm. It's a sapphic detective story. These three people who run like a little detective agency in their high school, the main character's sister went missing a year prior. And that's why she started it. She's been trying to discover what happened to her her sister. And I am just so impressed by her. And her writing is amazing. When I was that age, I would never have been able to do what she has done in this book. I don't think it comes out till mid-September, but keep an eye out for it. Okay. Well, I will be adding those books to the show notes. And Kathleen and Liz, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the night in question. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Ashley. We really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh, 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 oh. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.